We, uh, we're in a series that we're committed to over the course of the whole year, 50 weeks, where we are studying the book of Acts. And we've gone through uh, chapter 5 is where we were last week. We looked at the beginning of chapter 5. Um, where we look specifically at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and we, uh, we ventured through what can be a very difficult passage. Uh, so today we're going, to, we're going to actually fast forward into chapter 6 and chapter 7. We're going to look at a huge passage in the midst of uh, the book of Acts, um, but don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. Um, we are going to talk about what's embedded in that passage. But before we do, I want to get us caught up with then where we are. So we're going to be starting here in uh, chapter 6. But before that, I want to talk about what has transpired then in the rest of chapter 5. So in, in chapter 5, um, we... Uh, we see that Luke, the author of Acts, writes in verse 12 that the apostles performed many signs and wonders. And then in verse 14, it talks about how many were uh, brought into this relationship with Jesus Christ, that the gospel, the message of the resurrected Jesus was changing lives. Already, over in the course of just a handful of months, we've seen thousands of people decide to follow Jesus and make him the leader of their life. It also talks about how many were healed. Many were healed. But as a result of the many who came to believe in Jesus Christ, and because of the, of the healings that were taking place, uh, there was a lot of persecution that began to transpire as well. And specifically, the apostles, the 12 apostles were jailed because of them proclaiming the resurrected Jesus. Uh, but even that having been jailed and the threats that they were receiving from the, uh, the hands of the Jewish officials, that didn't stop them from proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God. As a matter of fact, uh, the Lord actually miraculously freed them from jail, and they went out and continued to preach about the resurrected Jesus, despite threats from the Sanhedrin, which is the, basically the Jewish authorities, other Jewish officials. They did not relent, the apostles, from speaking and preaching about Jesus the Messiah. So the officials got together. And they talked about, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about this thing that's just spreading? And especially these, these, these 12 men who are leading this charge. I mean, we got to do something. And in the midst of that, one of the Pharisees um, stood up and he said, hey, listen, I got some words. Listen to this. In verses 38 and 39 of chapter 5, in the present case I advise you, leave these men alone. Now, in case you think that this is this Pharisee is being benevolent or anything, listen to this. He says, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And so that's what they did. They let him go, they flogged the apostles, and they threatened them again, saying, hey, do not do this, believing 
that it wasn't of God and that ultimately it would fail. But the apostles and the followers of Jesus did not stop. Acts chapter 5, the end of that uh, chapter, it says this in verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So this brings us to Acts chapter 6. Now, up to this point, we've seen some of the highest of highs. You may remember in Acts chapter 2, what happens? It's Pentecost. In Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the helper that was promised by Jesus, comes down and indwells the lives of the believers. And as I mentioned, uh, thousands of people are coming to the salvation of Jesus Christ. And, And not only thousands of people are coming to that salvation, but also many are being healed. I mean, this is the highest of highs kind of stuff. But then now we start seeing some of the lowest of lows. Obviously, there's this, this, uh, the, these threats by the Jewish officials saying, stop talking about Jesus as if he's the, the Messiah or if he's God or that he rose from the dead. But then here in chapter 6 we, and 7, we also see uh, persecution that, that ends up in the death of one of their followers. Right away in in Acts chapter 6, the the apostles get together and they're like, hey, listen, this has grown so much, it's gotten so big, so fast, that we literally cannot handle all the needs of the church. We need to appoint seven men who will help facilitate more of the administrative needs so that everybody's needs are met. So they do that. They appoint seven individuals, and one of those individuals is the person that we're going to focus on in the rest of our time here, and that person's name is Stephen. Now, uh, raise your hand if you've heard the story or read the story of Stephen. Fantastic. Now, if you haven't, it's no big deal. We're going we're gonna to tackle that here in a minute. But let me just put this out there right away. Um, if you have heard or read about the story of Stephen, chances are you have focused on the wrong thing. We're going to point that out. We're going to look at what is the reason why Acts puts this story in this book. And it's not because of what we tend to think is the reason. So the persecution and threats persisted. Stephen, in particular, raised a bunch of eyebrows, especially amongst the Jewish officials, because he was saying things that really, really bothered them. And so there are some individuals who weren't comfortable with some of the things that Stephen specifically was saying, and so they brought, uh, they brought these accusations to the Sanhedrin. We see this in Acts chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. If you have your Bibles, you can follow me along, or else it'll be on the screen. So these people that had issues with Stephen, it says in verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. 
They produced false witnesses who testified that this fellow, Stephen, never stops speaking against this holy place. What is this holy place that they're referring to? The temple and the, against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses hand, handed, down to his, handed down to us. Now, for these Jewish authorities, these accusations were pretty serious. I mean, they held in very high regard not only the customs that had been carried on for, for uh, uh, generations and centuries, but then this te- the temple, the holy temple. And now Stephen is going out and talking about, about you know, how this temple is going to be destroyed or desecrating the holiness of, of, this, of this place seemingly and then messing with some of our, our customs. I mean, this is not right. So they bring Stephen before the Sanhedrin and in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7 it says this, Then the high priest, which is basically like the, the dude in charge of the Sanhedrin there, Asked Stephen, are these charges true? In verse 2, to this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. All right. So right away, one thing we need to highlight here, because it, it pervades throughout the entirety of Stephen's speech that he gives to these Jewish authorities. Right away, how does Stephen refer to God? Stephen specifically refers to God as the God of all glory. And so right off the bat, right off the bat, what Stephen's doing is he's setting the stage and a foundation for everything that's going to follow. And he's basically emphasizing that, hey, this God that you claim to follow and that I claim to follow, this, is, this God is transcendent. He is beyond. He's beyond our constructs. He's beyond our, 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 our limitations, our limitations. He's beyond our comprehension. God is transcendent. He is glorious. He is majestic. All right? Let's get that, let's get that out right away, Stephen is saying. So Stephen's speech to the uh, um, Jewish authorities is, is a long one. Chapter 7 is one of the longest chapters um, in, in Acts. And without going into all the details, I do want to just point out that he goes on in great length talking about Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, you know. And then you got um, uh, uh, David and Solomon He's going through all these details with these Jewish officials, but his, the main person, the main focus of his message is Moses. Now, why, why talk about all this? I mean, think about it. I mean, this is, this is like basic Jewish history. And the people that he's telling all this to are incredibly learned 
I mean, they know all about Abraham. They know all about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. They know all about Moses. They know all about David and Solomon. So why in the world does Stephen feel the need to talk about all this? He's literally, I guess, maybe talking to the choir? Or is there something, a point that he's trying to get across? In his message, after he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, he goes to talk about Moses and specifically the, the um, uh, freedom of the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians. And then the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness. And as they're wandering through the wilderness, Moses is on the, the mountaintop, Mount Sinai, receiving, receiving the, uh, the law from the Lord. And while he's on the mountaintop, the Israelites get impatient and they start taking matters into their own hands. In chapter 7, verses 41 through 43, it says this, That was the time they, the Israelites, made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, the moon, the stars. And this agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Specifically, this has come from the book of Amos in the Old Testament. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel. You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Raphan, The idols you made to worship, therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now right here is where Stephen then really hones in and starts making it clear the danger of believing that humans can construct, one, with their own hands the laws they want to obey, but then much more dangerously that that humankind can, can construct the holding place that contains God. So Stephen doesn't mince words. Look at at how he concludes his speech in verses 44 through 47. He says this, Our ancestors, our ancestors, he's speaking to these Jewish authorities, had the tabernacle of the covenant of the law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. And after receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought, brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So <clears throat> Solomon was the one responsible ultimately then for building the permanent temple in, in Jerusalem. And what Stephen here is saying is that you guys have forgotten He's saying to these Jewish authorities, you guys have forgotten, you're so worried about protecting the sanctity of this place that you've literally forgotten what Solomon says when he commissioned the temple in the first place. What did Solomon say when he commissioned the temple? Well, Stephen Stephen shares that again in verses 48. He says, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. 
And then Stephen references the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. He says, hey, you Jewish authorities, you put Isaiah on a pedestal, but even remember what Isaiah says? He says this, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? So consider the transient history of the temple. So as Moses and the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, God um, had them uh, construct a, um, uh, the um, tabernacle. Thank you. Wow, that was a moment. The tabernacle. Now this was basically a tent. It would be constructed when they were in one place and then when they would move to another place, they would tear it down and they would get there and they would put it back up again. They'd be there and then they would leave, they'd tear it down and then they'd go to another place and they'd put it up and and it would be up again. It was basically like the, the first RV. And that happened in, um, all throughout the wilderness. And then eventually Joshua carried the Israelites into the promised land that was promised. And it was there that they brought the tabernacle. And then Solomon, Solomon built the permanent temple structure, the one that these Jewish authorities are so concerned about. Basically, with tremendous simplicity for me, Stephen points out that in all of that, it was not humankind determining where God was, but rather it was God who determined where he should be. So needless to say, that didn't sit well with the Jewish authorities. They weren't happy at all with what it is that Stephen was saying. We see what happens in verses 54 through 60 when it says this. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Jewish officials believed this was blasphemous because Jesus was not divine according to them. And so because of that, they covered their ears and they started yelling at the top of their voices and they all rushed at Stephen, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of their killing him. Saul, who would later become Paul. Now, there were two reasons for Stephen's speech to the Jewish officials. The first is to point out that throughout history, many people had... Uh, prophesied on behalf of God only to be rejected. But the second reason for Stephen's speech is the most important, and that's the one that we need to understand today, and is the main reason why this story is included. The Jewish authorities and, and, and many others, they had morphed into focusing on idols like the tabernacle and the temple. 
And subsequently, they'd fallen into this trap of thinking that God had and uh, was and always had been and is subjugated to where humankind decides that he should be. They were only concerned about the sanctity and the holiness of the temple. But it was God himself. It was God himself who stated that he is not confined to what human hands build. But rather it's God and God alone who decides where he is and where he's going. And the first thing that Stephen points out to these Jewish authorities, right at the beginning of his, of his uh, speech to these, to these officials, we read it earlier, it lays the stage. He points out right away that God is not confined to a place or a people. Look at this again, or listen to this again, because it won't be on the screen. Acts 7, 1 through 3. The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Stephen knows what he's saying here. He's saying, hey, listen, you think that God is subjugated to to just the Israelites. You think that God is subjugated to just this place, this temple. That thinking is idle thinking. Because the first time that God reaches out and connects with Abraham was outside of Jewish land. And keep in mind a key part of Stephen's speech in verses 48 through 50. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hands made all these things? Many people have overlooked the point of Stephen. Stephen's story and its inclusion in Acts. The point of it is not what we've focused on. The story of a man who believed so strongly that he gave his life for Jesus Christ. I mean, there's certainly power in that. There's certainly something we can glean from that, but that's not the purpose The purpose of of Stephen's story in the book of Acts is his speech to the Jewish officials. God's presence and work was never, ever subjugated to a location. It was never subjugated to a building. And even now, as was the case amongst the followers of Jesus in the early church, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the temple is now where? In each of us. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The destruction of the temple, as Stephen spoke of, was a literal replacement that changed a distant relationship with God into one where we could have fellowship with him. And it is here in this this story that Stephen makes clear the standard that, that the church and Jesus' followers should embrace even now. You see, God is not confined to buildings. 
He's not confined to traditions. He's not confined to rituals. He's not confined to your opinions. Nothing nor anyone can contain God. And because of this, the church is called to move when and where God moves. Tim Keller writes that Stephen seemed to be the first Christian leader to grasp that the gospel has a radical missionary energy to it. He realized that the gospel of Jesus means that God's presence is not tied to one land or one people. All right. The church is like a shark. If a shark stops swimming, if a a shark stops moving, what happens? It dies. The church has to be on mission. That's how it was designed. That's what it's been called to do. The church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is to be God's witness to the world. To be on mission means to go. You see, we we cannot confine God to this place. Uh, We cannot confine God to our traditions. We cannot confine God to our rituals or to our opinions. We cannot confine God to our comfortability. Because when the church gets comfortable, the church becomes complacent. And when the church becomes complacent, it becomes ineffective. And when the church becomes ineffective, it will die. God's called us to something more. He's called us to go, to be on mission. And that takes courage. It takes courage. It takes faith and believing and trusting in what he says. Well, as we've been doing every Sunday through this series, is proclaiming this creed together. And so I invite you to say this out loud with me again today. We are the church. We have received power from the Holy Spirit. We are Jesus' witness to the world. We will give the love of Jesus to each other, to our community, and to the ends of the earth because we are the church. Praise God. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. We'll see you on Saturday. God bless.